with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when do you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. To you, O Lord. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him, there is no other, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any questions. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Friends, would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in you we live and we move and we have our being. You are as close to each one here as our very breath that we breathe now. God, would you open our eyes to see you? Would you open our ears to hear you? Would you incline our hearts to love you? And would you order our steps that we might walk in the way of your kingdom? We pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever been in a crowd of fans watching a game? One thing you will note about any sports fan, and I speak as one of them, is each one sees him or herself as the expert of both their team and their sport. Seriously, Carson Wentz? How could you miss that easy throw? Are you kidding me, Ben Simmons? How hard is it to make a shot? Fans speak like it's so easy. Like we understand firsthand what it means to be a professional athlete. 
while I pretended to in my dreams as a seven-year-old, the reality is we don't. Think just for a minute of the composure and the skill it takes to complete a pass in the NFL. You have two to three seconds to throw a pass directly on target where a cornerback is waiting to intercept that pass if you don't throw it precisely in the right spot before he's even there, all while four 250 to 300 pound men are coming to end you. <laughs> That's anything but easy. There's a significant difference between analyzing a sport as a fan from a distance versus participating in one as a professional athlete. What looks so simple on your screens is anything but easy. As we come to this text in Mark's gospel, I believe there's a similar dynamic happening. The words love of God and love of neighbor are very familiar in the world of Christians. People can speak of these words like they're really simple, even using them to judge other people from a distance. But while these words are straightforward and familiar, they are anything but easy. Anyone who's tried to live them out knows that all too well. Anyone who has waded into the complex waters of both your own story or the story of others knows there's a profound difference between analyzing this text as a story versus living it out with the real people in your life. While these words are familiar, by entering into this story where Jesus engages this real scribe and these listening crowds, my hope is that we'll see a deeper picture of what it means to love God and to love our neighbors. We will follow this story through three different parts. First, a genuine question. Second, a two-sided command. And third, a surprising response. That's first, a genuine question, two, a two-sided command, and three, a surprising response. First, a genuine question. The scene with Jesus and the scribe is part of one larger episode in Mark's gospel. The picture of the larger scene is a crowded room, but it's not a crowded room like the Super Bowl party you had two weeks ago. This is a tense and even a hostile room, not unlike a certain Senate impeachment trial that you may have heard about. This hostile crowded room is in the temple, and that is significant to note. The temple is the stomping ground of the religious and professional elites, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, of which the scribes are a part. Jesus has come onto their turf, and they have come to challenge him in his authority. There's also a large crowd of people watching who've been impressed by Jesus. So we zoom in from the larger crowds, the religious elites, to this individual scribe. The scribe is impressed with Jesus. So he moves from the crowds to approach Jesus with a question. Which commandment is the first of all? Or as some translate, the greatest. The spirit of the scribe's question 
is quite different from the different questions Jesus has already been asked. Mark explicitly said that the spirit of the Pharisees' question was to trap him. It's a gotcha question, the one about paying taxes to Caesar, not a question to engage Jesus. The Sadducees, they ask him after that a cynical question about a resurrection they didn't even believe. The point? To trip Jesus up, to win a debate. But this scribe, he asks a genuine question because he's impressed with Jesus. Now, why does any of that matter? Unlike last week, where the question wasn't really about paying taxes, but how to ninja your way out of a trap question, this week's sermon is different. Because it's a genuine question, what follows is a genuine positive teaching moment from Jesus. It was both meant to instruct his people then and meant to instruct us now. The scribe's question is also a really common one. In the early Judaism of Jesus' day, there were more than 613 commandments. That's a lot. And there was a lot of debate about how to rank what of those 613 was the most important. Because he's impressed with Jesus, the scribe wants to know, what does this rabbi think about that debate? It's kind of like asking a presidential candidate, what is most important in your campaign? Now, while the scribe asks a genuine question, how do you think you would respond in Jesus' shoes? Imagine you're in a crowd of people that includes hostile opponents, people who don't like you, don't want to be with you in the room, and who actually want to make you look like a fool. Now, you get asked a question that while it's genuine, it's about one of the hottest debates that's going on, and every person in the room has an opinion about it. That doesn't make me want to engage. My my knee-jerk reaction, in fact, would be to get out of the room as fast as I could. Maybe you're like me in that you would withdraw, or maybe with anger rising in you, you want to spar with them. You want to react in anger. But Jesus, he doesn't withdraw, he doesn't react, as would be all too easy. He engages the scribe. Before he talks about the greatest commandment, Jesus, as he so often does, embodies the commandment. We now move from the scribe's genuine question to Jesus' response in the second part a two-sided command. Look with me at verses 29 through 31. Jesus responds to the scribe's question there. The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus first quotes the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 5. That is, 
the most central confession of faith in Judaism. Jesus isn't being novel, in other words. He's appealing to his Jewish audience. Loving the one true God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, in other words, your whole self, that's most important. In the crowded room, everyone would have been nodding their heads at Jesus' answer. But notice, Jesus goes beyond the scribe's question. He includes something the scribe didn't even ask. The second most important command, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote from Leviticus 19. While Jesus prioritizes love of God as of first importance, by connecting God's love to love of neighbor, he's in effect saying this. You can't have one without the other. These are two sides of the same coin. The greatest commandment is both vertical, loving God, and it's horizontal, loving your neighbor. But before we look more deeply at both of those sides, what does Jesus mean by love anyway? Notice first, he commands love. That should sound strange to your modern ears. Most people today equate love with the feeling of affection. When I googled love, in fact, the first definition that came up was this, an intense feeling of deep affection. But how exactly can you command an intense feeling? The short answer is you can't. In this first century Jewish context, love is less about an emotional state. It's more a call of loyalty and devotion to God. And it's a call to love our neighbors as ourselves, not by how we feel about them on any given day. Pausing, that isn't to minimize feelings. Feelings are deeply important, both to you and to God. He cares about how you feel. But I believe there's a beautiful invitation here. We live in a culture that says you are what you feel. That you are all the different ups and downs, all the different emotions that you carry. This command is saying that your faith doesn't rest on your feelings, but on the God who loves you in all the ups and downs that you feel in your life. The God that we love because he first loved us. He calls us to respond to him in the freedom of giving our whole selves both to God and our neighbors. Now, with love defined as loyalty and remembering you can't separate these two commands, I want to consider what happens when we detach these two commandments. First, what happens when we detach love of God from love of neighbor? We get a direct picture of this in the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. While the scribe in that story also rightly said these commands are both love of God and love of neighbor, he asked Jesus a question, wanting to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Jesus then tells the familiar story. A man is beaten, he's left on the road, and you have three people who come and pass him by. You have a priest, you have a Levite, 
and you have a Samaritan. The provocative part of the story is that it wasn't the religious experts. It wasn't the people who knew better who were the exemplary neighbor. The Samaritan, the one the Jews hated because they were caught in a bitter religious feud, that is the exemplary neighbor. What's the point and what is Jesus doing in that story? Jesus is redefining neighbor, not as just one's fellow Israelites, but as everyone, enemies included. One author put it this way, one cannot define one's neighbor, one can only be a neighbor. When we detach love of God from love of neighbor, we choose our neighbors as we often do based on who we like. But Jesus says when we do that, we're no different from anybody. This expanded vision of neighbor that Jesus gives is so deeply needed today, isn't it? Everywhere we look, it does not take long to see that we carve up our neighbors everywhere as us and as them. We do this politically. We do it in the church, in denominations. We do it through race. We do it through gender. We do it through class. We do it through fashion. We do it through where you go out to eat, where you go get your groceries. There's no end to the way we carve each other up. But where we see difference and where our world sees difference and wants to divide, Jesus says, that's your neighbor. Go be a neighbor to them. It's not about us versus them. It's not about who's in and who's out. It's about us being a neighbor to everyone, regardless of difference. Jesus is saying in the greatest commandment, how you love your neighbor is a reflection of your love for God. Our love for God isn't chiefly measured through your quiet time. It's not measured by how religious you are, how much theology you know, how much you come to church, all good things. But it's measured far more by how you love your real neighbors in your everyday life. Second, what happens when we detach loving our neighbors from loving God? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is to give our allegiance to God and not to Caesar, as Chris showed us last week. It's to give our whole selves to God. If we seek to only love our neighbor and not God, our allegiance lies elsewhere. Rather than being whole, we end up fragmented and divided. My day job, as the other Jonathan shared earlier, is I'm a hospital chaplain. And one man I met this week really struck me when he talked about this common problem we have of being fragmented. He shared with me his struggle with addiction, but how it was rooted in a deeper struggle of shame. In a poignant moment, he said with tears, I'm four different people. There's who I am at work. There's who I am when I go out. There's who I am with friends. And there's who I am alone. He went on to share how most people in his life 
just want him to be the gregarious, positive, fun person that they love. But when he shares other parts of himself, how sad he is, how inadequate he feels, they want no part of it. This man later shared at the end of the conversation, I just want to be one person. Can you relate to this man? That the person who you are when you're at work with your colleagues or when you're home with your families and with your roommates is not always the person you are when you go out or when you're alone with yourself. Loving God is an invitation. It's an invitation to bring all of who we are to God. The good and the bad, where you feel strong and where you feel weak, where you have light and where you have darkness. God wants all of that, not just the best versions of yourself that you try to bring, whether it's here or whether it's in your jobs or on your resume. God wants you. The man in my example shared really how loving God begins when we get honest about our fragmentation. When we attempt to love our neighbors without loving God, we lose ourselves in the process. Without a solid base of loving God, we cannot love our neighbors long or well. The greatest commandment is a two-sided coin, loving God and loving our neighbor. You can't have one without the other. This brings us to our third and final point, a surprising response. Now, the scribe affirms Jesus joining these two commandments. He even calls him a good teacher. But he does more than just affirming what Jesus says. He says, quote, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's an explicit reference to both the temple and the sacrificial system that Chris preached about just a couple weeks ago. Standing in that temple, it's no small thing that the scribe, that the scribe actually says these words in the company of other religious elites and peers. Jesus affirms that he answers wisely, but then he gives this surprising and rather strange response. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, on the one hand, you can take that positively. Looking at the whole story, Jesus hasn't affirmed one scribe. So this guy is affirmed. You're close. <laughs> but remember who these scribes are. These are the top religious authority in Jerusalem. They are the experts. This prospective scribe comes along. All of them are suspicious about him. And he says to them in their turf, you aren't far from the kingdom of God. Some of you in the audience work in medical settings like me. This statement is basically like a medical resident saying to an attending doctor after their assessment, that was almost spot on. Some of you might not want to imagine what would happen after that. 
being residents yourself. What is Jesus doing? He's flipping the script. Not only on the scribe, but on all the religious experts in this crowded room. While they have been evaluating him, Jesus says, I'm not just any other rabbi. That kingdom you're hoping for, that you're looking for, I'm the one who brings it. You're not far from God's kingdom because you're literally standing right in front of it. It's Jesus. The kingdom of God isn't Israel's notion of a political revolution where they kick out the Romans, they win, they occupy Rome, and all that through military might. The kingdom of God will and has come through the person of Jesus in the means of his cruciform love. In his response to the scribe, Jesus is saying something significant about how God's kingdom works. It's not about knowing the right answer. It's about beholding the right person. In Jesus, we see not just the answer. We see the beautiful reality of what love of God and what love of neighbor look like when they come together. Jesus saw the unseen as his neighbors. Lepers no one wanted to touch. Outcasts everybody shunned. Jesus embraced, he touched, and he healed. Tax collectors that not just Jews, but everybody hated. Jesus invited them into his house for dinner, inviting them into renewed relationship. Prostitutes that the religious saw as unworthy, Jesus welcomed, both seeing them and restoring their dignity as persons. After declaring the greatest commandment, Jesus embodied it. He gave his whole self to God. He gave his shaking and trembling fear to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He gave his devoted love that persisted even unto death when he could have chose a path of comfort or political force. All this he did because Jesus loved us, his neighbors, as he loved himself. So that we who were alienated from him might not only be his neighbors, but like him, might be God's beloved. Friends, do you see who Jesus is not only for you, but for the world? That he is God's kingdom come to earth. That he is love incarnate, love in a person, come to show us this new way of both loving God with our whole selves and loving our neighbor as ourselves. The greatest commandment isn't really about trying harder or about getting the right answers. It is Jesus' invitation for us to be caught up in his own story, to first receive his love offered for us and then offer it in return to each other and our neighbors. We love because he first loved us. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, we thank you um, for the way that you love us. Um, that no matter how each one of us comes into this room this morning, whether we feel warm toward you, whether we feel indifferent and bored with you, whether we feel ice cold toward you, none of that determines your movement and your engagement or your love of us. Would you lead us to behold in Jesus who you are for us as the God who first and always loves us so that we might be a people who would surprise our divided world, that our us would expand and our them would shrink. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.